Amen. Well, I don't know if you guys have uh, noticed this before, but every story has a backstory. Every story has a place that has history before we get to begin the story. And, uh, you know, uh, those of you guys who are Star Wars fanatics like I used to be know that when George Lucas wrote the original Star Wars movie, he had in his mind things that, were, that happened in the history of those people. And what I heard one time when Lucas was, was uh, filming or was talking about the filming of, of the first episode that came out, episode three, part of it is, is he already knew what was in the background, but he also didn't have the technology to be able to do those things. So that's why the prequel came out some 20 years after the, the original. But every story has a backstory. And there are, it's so interesting to watch how artists and watch how filmmakers and, and things like that beautifully intersperse things. And, and for instance, in the TV series, This Is Us, it's a story about a family with uh, a husband and wife, and they had triplets. And on the day the triplets were born, one of the children died. And on that same day, this other child was orphaned. And so they invited this other child into their home and adopted him as their son. So they still had three. But the, the beauty of This Is Us is that it goes back and forth between the history, the old days, what feels like the 70s, and the modern era. And, and it, it's just neat to see the way that um, directors and, and filmographers are, are, are weaving past and present together in order to help us understand exactly what's going on. And I think this is just as true in our lives, in real life, as it is in fiction. Our history officially began April 1st, 2019. But the events of our lives leading up to that point shaped us into being the people that we were the first time we met and even in the four and a half years since then, God has been doing things in us collectively and individually, weaving our lives together, not forsaking the history, but weaving those histories into a story that he's continuing to write. And I bring that up because when we come to the epistles, when we come to the letters in the New Testament, a lot of times we, we come to those and all we get is little snippets, little cookie crumbs, little breadcrumbs that help us to understand what is going on and, and what, what happened in the founding of that church. There's a few times when we get a little bit of the backstory. And today, as we begin our study in the book of Thessalonians, we're actually going to be doing kind of a longer series in both First and Second Thessalonians. We actually do get a little bit of the backstory as Melody read in the book of Acts. So this, this new series, it's entitled Pressed and Persecuted, largely because this church, which had rough beginnings, had those beginnings because God appointed for them to start that way. God was doing something there in Thessalonica. And, I, and as I was thinking about how to talk about this today, I was thinking, well, maybe let's just consider the first verse. Let's consider the team effort. Let's consider uh, the true identity of these new followers of Christ and the tranquility that Paul is hoping for as he lays out his, his greeting. If, for instance, 1 Thessalonians 1.1 1, 1 says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. 
But instead, I'd like us to look back into the prequel, into the story behind the story that we begin to read in the letters to the Thessalonians. And I think this will help us to understand the church. It will also help us to understand how we live and how we should live in an increasingly antagonistic society, but also as we seek to be faithful to share the good news of the gospel in the world in which we live. So if you have your Bibles and want to open them up to the book of Acts, we'll be in chapter 17. We'll look at the first 10 verses of that. And as we spend the remainder of our time there, we're essentially going to be looking at the audience and how that impacted the apologetic that Paul and his his compatriots laid out. Then we'll also get to see the answer from the, the people in Thessalonica, and then we'll conclude by considering briefly the adjustment that Paul, Silas, and Timothy had to make. So if you want to take notes in your outline, it's there. And, um, let's begin by considering the audience. This is found in verse 1 of chapter 17 in, in Acts. So as we come to this place, Paul is on his second missionary journey. He began his adventure with Silas, also known as Silvanus, and he picked up Timothy along the way. And we could see that in in chapter 16. And initially, Paul, after he picked up Timothy, he wanted to go to the Northeast. He wanted to go up into Asia. He wanted to preach the gospel up there. And yet God, in a dream, said, no, Paul, you can't go there. God gave him a dream, a vision of a guy in Macedonia. And he said, I want you to go there. But then the question becomes, where do we go? Where do you go from where he was to get to what part of Macedonia? Macedonia was huge. It was a very big province. And I think this is important for us to consider briefly that there are plans that you and I may have. There are ideas and intentions and people we'd like to minister to. But God may have other plans. Paul's diversion from Asia to Macedonia allowed him to have a profound ministry in many of those, in many different places. In fact, many of the letters that we have in the New Testament come as a result of this diversion. Not only the letters that we're looking at over the next several weeks, First and Second Thessalonians, but the book, to, book of uh, Philippians and First and Second Corinthians came out of this diversion as Paul moved west instead of east. The book of James, I think, gives us a helpful reminder here in James 4, 13 to 15. It says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a place and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist, a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, We will live and do this or that. The Lord didn't will for Paul to go to Asia at this time, but God had big plans for him in Macedonia. And so the trio went first to Philippi where they had both a fruitful ministry and they, had, they also had some trouble there. There were some business leaders who, who stirred up a mob and had Paul and, and Silas thrown in prison and then they were released and asked to, to leave town. And then in Acts 17, 1, it notes that the guys passed over Amphipolis and Apollonia. And I think likely they passed over those places because they didn't find any common ground. And we'll get to that in just a moment when we come to the Thessalonica. So they end up in this town, Thessalonica. It's It's known as a free town, which essentially meant they didn't have to pay the same taxes to Rome that the other towns did. 
which might be a good deal. I mean, it would be a pretty cool deal if you only had to pay taxes one place, like only state taxes and not federal. But in any case, this, this town, they had their own mon monetary system. They were able to mint their own coins. There was loyalty to the emperor, but they had a, also had a great deal of liberty. Thessalonica was a wealthy town. They had a, a major port. You can see that it's there on, on, right on a body of water. But one of the things you can't really see very well on that map is the fact that it's also on a major road that went from west to east. It went all the way from in, in the east, uh, what is currently um, Istanbul or Constantinople, as it later was known, Byzantium, all the way out to the Adriatic Sea. It became a major highway, highway called the Via Ignatia. But it was also a pagan city. In, in Thessalonica, they worshiped the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods. They engaged in all sorts of, all of the sexual and indulgent activities that accompanied worshiping those deities. But there was also an, a large enough community of Jews that they could have a synagogue. And it's, it's in this synagogue that Paul begins his conversations with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. It is here that Paul begins to lay out the apologetic. Paul began where he had common ground with the Jews and what is later referred to as God-fearing Greeks. In verses 2 and 3, note that when Paul and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the Scripture, explaining and proving that it was necessary for, for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. You see, this was Paul's pattern. Whenever he went someplace, he went often to a synagogue or to a place where the Jews would gather. In Philippi, he went to a little place outside of town where, where people will, where God-fearing people would go to pray. But here he went to the synagogue. And I think it's interesting that Paul does this, I think, for two reasons. First of all, there's a theological reason. In fact, he lays that out a little bit in Romans 1.16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. And so Paul is going to the Jews first because this is what he believed was right. Jesus, I think, affirmed that in his conversation with the woman at the well when he said that salvation is from the Jews. But Paul also seemed to begin in synagogues and among Jewish people in order to explain what was often misunderstood. And we'll get to that in a moment. But he, he also, the second reason, not only did he have a theological reason, but he had a personal reason, a relational reason. Because he was going, I think, because he had a common heritage. Paul had some common religious beliefs. They were monotheistic. They believed in one God instead of the pantheon of God's. They believed in the Hebrew scriptures. They believed in the same view of sin. They believed in creation. They understood that God was the creator, creator and ruler of all things. And so Paul goes to this place where he has a great deal of common ground in order to build a bridge to the gospel. And for us, I think it's important for us to look for the places where we have commonality with people with whom we may share the gospel. There's a risk that in saying that, we'll go to people that just look like us, just like the same teams that we like, just talk like us, have the same traditions. But we don't have to be exactly the same. 
We can go where people have, might have the same life stage that we, we have. Maybe it's a similar career. Maybe it's a similar educational background. Maybe it's similar interests or hobbies. Or maybe it's the stage that our kids are at. As I mentioned earlier, we were at a cross-country meet yesterday. There were probably well over 1,000 people at this meet, the runners and the parents. It was a big deal. And it was so interesting getting to sit down. I told you about that guy who comes with his son to to, um, rise against hunger. But what a joyous opportunity. He and I would not have had a chance to meet except that our kids were running in the same races. And so we got a chance to know one another a bit. I got to find out about his two kids and what they're studying and what they're really good at. I found out a little bit about his wife. I found out about his Christian background. In fact, he grew up about 30 minutes from where Danielle and I went to college. I would never have known that except that we had some common ground. So I want to just encourage us to look for those places of commonality. Be aware of those places that God puts us in. When it comes to the content of what Paul shared, John Stott notes that Paul had a very clear formula. He he did this. First of all, he argued from the Old Testament scriptures that the expected Christ had to suffer and would rise from the dead. Paul took different parts of scripture and said, hey guys, look, here's what the prophets are saying. Here's what the prophets are communicating that will happen to the Christ. And then he does something very interesting. Stott notes that he, he takes Jesus' life and he said, and here's this guy, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, Stott, Stott writes, he, he proclaimed Jesus of Nazareth to them, doubtless telling the story of his life, death, and resurrection. So he, he has on one hand, he has the, the Old Testament scriptures and he said, this is something you don't quite understand about the Christ. And then he tells about Jesus Christ. And he says, here's this guy, Jesus, who did all these things. And then Stott notes, finally, that he pulls the two together. And he says, thirdly, he put the first and second points together and declared that Jesus was the Christ. It's one thing to talk about the the prophecies that point to the Messiah. It's another thing to take those prophecies and help people understand the fulfillment of those prophecies. Several years ago, I got a chance to hear, a, watch a video about a guy who was doing those man on the street kind of interviews. And this guy was doing these interviews in Jerusalem, in Israel. And what was so interesting is he would go up to these people with a microphone and a camera and he said, hey, let me ask you this. I want to read a part of your scriptures. Tell me who is this? And so he would open the Bible and he would read Isaiah 52 and 53. And there were people there that knew the story of Jesus. They didn't believe in who he was. But they could see clearly in the Old Testament scriptures how they pointed to Jesus Christ. And I think that's a little bit of what Paul is doing here. He's saying, you've read about this. Now let me tell you about Jesus. And this, what the Old Testament is pointing to, is the guy that we are proclaiming to you today. Maybe for us, our point of commonality with the people that we get to interact with is not our religious background. Maybe it's just our humanity. Maybe it's our fallenness. There are are certainly things, there are tools that we can use to help us bridge those gaps. But the best solution, I think, is simply to share your story. Share what your life was like before Christ. Share what God has done for you and how things have been different since you met.
Christ. So, but I, I think it's important to recognize that just as Paul didn't do this alone, Paul is often the mouthpiece. He's the guy that everybody says Paul spoke and Paul did this. But notice he was always with someone else. Even in writing his letters, while he was the main author, he had other people with him. We're not in this alone. We're with our brothers and sisters in this room. We're with our community groups as we pray for one another, as we get opportunities to go and share the gospel with other people. I heard a story recently about a guy from Capitol Hill Baptist down in D.C. And this, there, there's a gentleman that intentionally went out on his own, inspired by some of the things that they had heard. He went out sharing the gospel. He went out just trying to meet people and, and interact with them, open scripture with them. And so he ran across a guy at the, one of the metro stations and began to strike up a conversation with him, shared the gospel with him and invited him to church. The guy didn't respond to the gospel at that time, but he said, yeah, I'd be happy to come to church. So he got involved in church. He came a few times, two, three, four, five times. And then he, he heard about uh, some other groups that they had. And so he jumped in on some of these groups. And eventually after a couple of months, this guy gave his life to Christ. And on the, on the day that he was baptized, he had to share his testimony which maybe it's something we should, we should start doing. But he shared his testimony. And as he did, he said, you know, this entire congregation led me to Christ. Sure, this guy introduced me, started it off, but it was everybody from the preaching to the music to the people I sat next to, the people in the small group that I got to be a part of, everybody had a hand in leading me to Christ. And I, I think that's one of the joys that we have of being in the body of Christ together is that we're not alone. We get to help one another. And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy began uh, by, by understanding their audience. He knew, they knew who they were talking to. And then they laid out their apologetic over three weeks. And next, Acts notes the answer in uh, verses 4 to 9. The answer that the people in Thessalonica gave. In many ways, this was a twofold response. You see, there were some who responded, who answered with acceptance. We see this in verse 14. It says, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. These are the responses we love. These are the responses we love to see and say, yes, someone responded to the gospel. And it seems that some of them referred to Jewish people. These were people who were a part of the synagogue. These are... God-fearing Jews who, who heard Paul's argument and said, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. But he says that there were also some folks who were called devout Greeks. And these were people who would, who would come to synagogue who might not have converted completely, but they were just sort of curious. They didn't believe in that whole pantheon of deities. They believed that there was a God and they believed that the God of the Hebrews was the God that they should serve. So they would come and check out as much as they could. But I find it interesting that Luke in, in Acts notes that there were, a, there were among those who believed not a few leading women, possibly both Jewish and Greek, women of influence in that community. And on that note, one of the interesting things that we notice throughout the history of the church is that women have had a major role. The, the church has always been predominantly female. From the very earliest of days, women have made up a major part of the church. And so ladies, thank you for your influence. 
Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your witness and your example. Thank you for the way that you do relationships way better than us guys do. I know about that Sunday night coffee group that just meets to talk and pray and encourage one another. For those of you who are married to men who either don't believe in Christ or who don't actively put their faith into practice, thank you for being a faithful witness. Paul encouraged the Ephesians in in Ephesians 6.10. He said, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I would guess some of these leading women in Thessalonica were married to men who chose not to believe. So ladies, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. But this little backstory helps us to see that from the outset, this church also was an ethnically varied group. There were Jews, there were Gentiles, there were differing heritages of men and women. So the question for us is, how are we doing in getting the gospel to people who are different than us? Yeah, we want areas of commonality so we can build a bridge to the gospel. But the church is not a monolithic group. The church is intended to be. And, and oh, what a day that will be when Christ comes back and we're there around his throne and people from every nation, tribe, and language are there proclaiming his goodness. Are we being as welcoming and engaging and inviting as we can be with everybody who needs to hear the gospel? So there were some who answered with acceptance But we also get to see that there were some who answered Paul and Silas and Timothy with attack. You see, for them, the message of the gospel was offensive. And so they went to great lengths here in Thessalonica to reject the gospel. In fact, in verses 5 to 9, it says, But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. By the way, Jason was likely the synagogue ruler, the administrator in that place, and seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. You know, it's interesting how people will do unethical things when they feel like their belief system is threatened. We saw this when when Jesus was tried before his crucifixion. The Jewish leaders brought in all sorts of people to tell lies in order to 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 present something that was false, to present Jesus. And even those stories didn't match up. And here, one of the things that that we find interesting is that these people teamed up together to form a mob. In the book of Acts, there are several times when Luke points out the presence of mobs. Protests like these were unlawful and were often squashed with violence. In Philippi, the town just before that uh, Paul and his guys had had been to, the the business leaders started a riot and they kicked these guys out because they were threatened financially. 
But here, Luke notes that, uh, that it was the Jewish leaders who started this mob. And did you notice what they did? They grabbed the rabble. They grabbed guys who were, who were completely ungodly. They grabbed criminals and had them help them form a mob. And I guess that old adage, the enemy of, the en- of my enemy is my friend, was alive and well there in Thessalonica. And this attack was so disruptive that guys like Jason became imprisoned as collateral damage. And eventually the new believers were so threatened by the violence that they they urged Paul and his companions to leave. And unfortunately, as we will see in the study of these letters, the persecution persisted in Thessalonica for a long time. This church had rough beginnings, but the soil in which they were flir- began to flourish was also a very rocky and challenging soil. Their environment was difficult. So I want to ask us, so, so Paul and his, his guys, he, they, they knew the audience, they laid out their apologetic, and then they gave people an opportunity to answer. And so the question I have for you is, how have you responded? How have you answered the call of the gospel? Have you accepted God's offer for salvation? Have you repented of your sin or or have you, like many of these folks, rejected it? I pray that today would be the day of salvation. But beyond this, there are times, I think, when it's easy to think that adversity is a sign that we should not step into a certain place or into a certain ministry. Was Paul wrong to go to Thessalonica? What role does the adversity play in the kingdom of God and in our lives? Vern prayed earlier from, from the book of Job. Job's life was difficult. We sang a song about Job. Blessed, um, what was that first song? Blessed be your name. And, and the prayer that he prayed amidst the challenging circumstances of his life. And I want to encourage us, we may face adversity, we may face challenges, it might be health challenges, it might be financial, it might be relational, it could be any number of things, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep moving forward. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep pressing on. Sure, we should learn from it, but we should continue to pursue all that God has. And so after addressing their audience with the gospel apologetic and then receiving answers from believers and non-believers alike, Paul and his crew came to a place of adjustment. We see this in chapter 4, verse 10. It says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. So again, Paul's doing the very same thing, starting in that place of commonality. And it's interesting. In Philippi, when Paul was in prison and they said, Oh, you can go. Paul, (coughs) excuse me. Paul spoke up and he said, no, 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 no. I'm a Roman citizen and you have imprisoned me and beat me unlawfully. So I want you to publicly free us. This is not a freedom by night. I want you to publicly apologize. But it's interesting. Here in Thessalonica, Paul didn't appeal to his citizenship. He didn't appeal to to his status. He simply heard the, the message from his new brothers and sisters in Christ and he moved on. And, and I think it's important for us to recognize that we are called to be faithful, to live out and proclaim the gospel, but at that same time, we're not called to save anyone. Ultimately, what someone believes and how they respond is up to God. 
Paul was faithful to proclaim the gospel. In the book of Ezekiel, when we see Ezekiel's call into ministry, God gave Ezekiel words to say. And then he basically said, look, Ezekiel, if I give you a word and you don't give it to other people, it's on you. Look, look at what, Paul, what God says to, to Ezekiel. He says, if I warn the wicked, saying you are under the penalty of death, but you, Ezekiel, fail to deliver the warning, they will die in their sins and I will hold you responsible for their deaths. If you warn them and they refuse to repent and keep on sinning, they will die in their sins, but you will be saved yourself because you obeyed me. If the righteous people turn away from their righteous behavior and ignore the obstacles I put in their way, they will die. And if you do not warn them, they will die in their sins and none of their righteous acts will be remembered and I will hold you responsible for their deaths. But if you warn righteous people not to sin and they listen to you and do not sin, they will live and you also will have saved yourself too. This was a very specific message from God for Ezekiel. He was basically saying, Ezekiel, I want you to be faithful to what I call you to. And I think it's a similar call for us. There are people that God places in our paths. And if, if the Holy Spirit is saying, you speak to this person, you minister to this person, and we choose not to, we haven't been given a promise that it would be as severe, but we talked last week about not forsaking, not grieving the Holy Spirit. We have a responsibility to go where God calls us to go, to speak what God calls us to speak, to minister to those to whom God has called us to minister. We get to go and proclaim and then leave the responding to others. And while Paul and Silas went on from there to Berea and to Athens and, and Corinth and more, they didn't give up on these new believers. They wrote, they wrote letters. They wrote the letters that we're considering, but they also didn't compromise. They didn't shy away from proclaiming the good news. They continued to faithfully pursue and proclaim Christ everywhere they went. The church in Thessalonica may have had a rough beginning, but one thing we get to see is that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were faithful to communicate to these people the hope of the gospel. And I think we'll see over the next couple of weeks that they were also faithful to encourage and instruct this new church in the hope of eternity. These letters to the, to the Thessalonians provide some of the most detailed information about end times that, that we get anywhere else in Scripture. So my hope is that we will be fully aware of the audience that God has placed before us, that we might proclaim an appropriate apologetic granting them an opportunity to answer the call of the gospel and making adjustments along the way as the, as the Spirit might lead us. 